0: presentation. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and today's guests are creamy electric. Santa, I got Priya Ray, Robert Price here. Welcome in. How are you both?
2: Good, good. good. We're doing good. good. Living. Well,
1: that's <laughs> g- glad to hear that you're living and glad to see you both here on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to having you both on to tell the story of the infamous KLS.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, KLS is originally I from, you guys are originally
2: you're originally from miami right yeah the band is the band is originally from miami we are not native miami people but the band started in miami
1: yeah the band started in miami so where did you both come from and how did you get to florida
2: i am uh you know like a first generation american my father came here from india and had a PhD, He's a really smart man, had a PhD in engineering, and then did a sabbatical and was one of the earliest biomedical engineering people, like in the 70s, and wrote lots of books, and, you know, was kind of known as a researcher and stuff. So anyway, my life was like moving, I'm not, I was born in State College, Pennsylvania, but I moved about 13 times through my childhood, because, I don't know, I didn't, realize it as a kid. But, you know, now as an adult, I'm like, oh, my dad was probably trying to get tenure or something like that. And and I was all like, no, why? Why are you ruining my life? So um, my dad got a job at Florida International University because they wanted someone to create the mechanical engineering department there, which he did. And it's a thriving mechanical engineering department. And so he mo- moved and it was my senior year of high school. So he was like, we're going to move. And then I was just like, no, I will not move in the middle of the year of my senior year. I want to enjoy my last year of high school. And then I will go to Florida International University at a new person that doesn't know, you know, what the college is. It's just, I mean, I don't know. Florida International University did have a lot of local people that went to the same high school. So they all knew each other. But, you know, when you go to college, it's a new thing and you're start, everyone's starting new. So I was like, so I tell my father, no, you can't do this to me. So the last year, my high school, my father, traveled back and forth between milwaukee wisconsin which is where i did high school and miami florida where i ended up going to college so that's how i ended up in florida and robert now it's your turn
0: um i was raised by a pack of wild jews in um, brooklyn new york pretty much my first 18 years um And um, my first, yeah, my first uh, bunch of years were pretty much getting my ass beaten. My dad died when I was eight. I was left to my own accord. Um, I was a lost soul, pretty much hiding behind my desk most of the time or watching uh, inappropriate horror movies. Um, And what happened? Well, I started discovering like college radio and listening to WFMU and WNYU and I forget the one in Staten Island and discovering like other things besides the, um, I don't know, besides like, you know, running home from school, not getting beaten up. Um, it seemed culturally a lot more enlightened than say disco, which was what pretty much everyone surrounding me was into or classic rock. Um, so I started discovering like all this like crazy wild music, like Roxy music and, you know, I didn't have much of an allowance when I was a kid. So I had like $5 to like go out and buy records and usually hit the cutout bins at, um, back then the cutout bins, you'd find Sparks records. I found poly rock. I found a lot of stuff that now people, you know, deem relevant and good. But back then it was just like, you could find those records for $2, which was great. And that kind of, you know, started me off looking for other things, because people have a preconceived notion about New York that is always this cultural Mecca, but pretty much Brooklyn growing up at that time in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. Well, I was born in 65, so 58 right now. But um, yeah, we, we moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, me and my mother, and it was undeveloped and it sucked. And I started trying to get music together and do something to keep myself from offing myself
1: and um where in met, fort lauderdale was it robert uh sunrise
2: it was real you could see the sunrise musical center or yeah uh, or what i forget what that place I, was, one of my first
0: friends out there i met james genovese who was in sla and white riot and also Derek lehman or Derek hyde now um who you know he's playing a bunch of bands out there um i forget who was with maybe it was john messings who does the abominable dr john now He was in the prom sluts with me. We we went on to like the roof of the Sunrise Musical Center. We're drinking up there and just taking piss, pissing on the uh, construction equipment that was like knocking down the wooded area right there. It was really kind of early on
1: when like that area hadn't developed yet. So because you both had two totally different upbringings, how did you kind of meet in terms of your musical tastes?
2: I mean, Robert was from New York and he wasn't really, I was, you know, more of a suburban kid than Robert was more urban than I was. So I really got into punk rock and, but I was also very creative and Robert, Robert is, and he still is very more exploratory with music. So he wasn't really into punk exactly, but, you know, like kind of, you know, like, but stuff that I found interesting. And of course, you know, so we did live when cassette, t- cassette tapes existed. So when Robert and I first met, he did make me this really awesome mixtape that I listened to. And it had bands like, God, I think it had bands like Television and um,
0: Richard Hell.
2: Maybe Richard Hell, uh we're thinking, fellas, you know what it said. I don't. I, I think we got into them later. Yeah, maybe you know. we got. But I'm trying to remember because you know I listen to the tape all the time. But now, of course, I can't remember what was on it exactly. The only thing I
0: could think of now is I put Heat Miser from the uh, Rankin Bass Christmas thing.
2: Yeah, and Robert was, you know, and I think he's probably done this since he was like a little kid. But you know, he's always like into like the way K- KLS is music are on records. It's very Robert style. He likes like even when he made a mixtape, it wasn't like, oh, song after song. It was weird. It was like a song and some weird sample. Like way too much work. And then something. yeah, he put a lot of work into the mixtape. But but it was really good and I listened to it and I listened to it all the time. So where do you remember meeting each other? We met each other at church. <laughs> so initially. Yeah. Initially. Like I think I met Robert like before.
0: Before the prom sluts, me and Johnny, yeah, Bago were at. We're at. Went to Churchill's at a show we weren't playing at, and we just made like t-shirts, and we were really excited about it. And for some reason, we I don't think we had any shows. We didn't play very often during the initial days of the prom slits. Um and basically we just for some astoundingly brilliant idea just let's go to a show we're not playing out where nobody knows who the fuck we are and try to sell our t-shirts and we're just being really obnoxious and nobody bought it so
2: yeah and that's when i, I met pretty, robert was i was one of the victims of, Like they were like saying and i was like all right so this is a funny story about me and robert so basically you know like Tom told Robert, oh, Priya likes you. And and Robert was like, what? Why? Why would she like me type of thing? So then I called him and he thought I was like, I think he was trying to, he was friends with this girl that was in her last year of high school doing a yearbook thing. And he was like trying to get some weird writing into their yearbook. So he thought that I, I, I did, was. like kind
0: of a stream of consciousness style writing. And I think she just wanted to freak out all her, friends in high school. So I was going to write something really bizarre
2: that was her. Um, and that's who but, Robert thought I was when I called him. I was like, what? Like, so he was saying all this stuff. I and- talked for about 40
0: minutes before I realized she was Priya.
2: Yeah, because then I was like. And she
0: still was interested.
2: And I was just like. Do you know you know who this is, right? I think you think I'm someone else. (laughs) That's what I said, and he was like, "Oh!" Then when he realized it was me, then he was like, "Oh no, I've mortified it there." So I'm like, "It's okay, I don't care. That's fine."
0: I'm really good at that.
2: So yeah, so that's like our meeting story, and but he was in the Prom sluts, and that was his band at the time, and so yeah, so that's that. That's how that all began (laughs) yeah
1: no that's a good story and with and with the prom sluts uh you said that you played at churchills what were some other venues that were around at that time that you remember not just playing shows but also seeing shows Played like squeeze right we played musicians exchange our last
0: show was musicians exchange with marilyn manson and the spooky kids maybe you've heard of them i don't know sounds familiar (laughs) back breaking audibly on stage um yeah i was kind of getting really i don't know yeah so that that was our last show um and then pretty much like uh creamy electric santa kind of started out of like i just started going out to miami and hanging out more with priya and like have you know having different friends that she was going to college with and we were just kind of breaking away from the constraints of a more conventional rock band. I mean the prom slots were more like garage but rock. What other
2: places did the prom slots?
0: <laughs> I don't know. We played uh well, we we played Johnny
2: Bravo's house. We um did a lot of house shows. Like we did a lot of house shows. That's like yeah. the back then there were also a lot of house shows which don't seem to exist that much anymore. So people would just have shows at their houses and stuff.
0: So, I remember but, the prompt I remember the Fabroids, which was the band before the prom slots, and that was with um that was with Derek too. And I don't think I don't know if Johnny Bravo was playing yet. Um but yeah, I remember playing a girls' sweet sixteen party, um, which they all like left and we were stuck in the room with the parents. And like that was
1: pretty terrible. <laughs> why did they what do you remember about why they left in the middle of you playing? And they were in high school, and we weren't cool. <laughs>
0: we who, sucked.
1: <laughs> who 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 asked you all to play that that Sweet Sixteen party? You remember?
0: There was a kid, Pierre, who had like he, he had a really cool old analog synth, which at the time you didn't really see them that much, but when you did, they were really cheap. And he never changed the sounds on it, so it was like one of these like really cool patchable analog synths. And I was like, fuck. I've always wanted one of these. I'll give you something for this. He's like, no, no, I want to keep it. I want to keep-. And he, all he did was use the same screeching, obnoxious sound. He discovered a sound that sounded good. He didn't want to spend four hours like patching and experimenting and taking a chance and do whatever. So, anyway, Pierre was friends with this 16 year old girl. I think Pierre was actually, he might have been young. I think he, he was young. Actually, Derek was 16. When, we first, when I first started playing with them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all the kids went out. We did a, that back then. It was kind of a toss up. We all did different covers that the different band members wanted to do. So I think like Pierre brought Jet Airliner and maybe also to um, the Cars song, Just What I Needed. And I did like my own songs because from the get go, I never wanted to do covers really unless you know my take on covers is take a bad song and make it good or do a good song and do it completely different and it was pretty much it was boring and tedious um but yeah the so the prom let's yeah we also played like the first official kind of punk type show at churchill's when todd um jenkins jenkins and me first met dave and did the first show that was I think Broken Talent and Prom sluts, and there was three or four other bands I forget. But anyway, that's you know.
1: So you mentioned Broken Talent. You know, what do you remember about that band? Uh, yeah, they punk bands from that period. Great, man. I mean, weird. You know, they were just yeah. uh, they were kind of like more
0: like Flipper or you know, they were, they're kind of the anti-band. Like everyone didn't, a lot of people didn't like broken talent at all back then. And I remember a friend of mine when I first moved to Florida was telling me, Oh yeah, they really suck. And at first I kind of avoided them. And then I heard like, my God could beat up your God. And uh, I was like, man, this is fucking awesome, man. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, but that's a brilliant sentiment, man. That was just great. You know, their, their stuff was awesome. And, yeah, they were there were a lot of fun when I first moved there. Um played a few shows, but I only saw Broken Talent like maybe twice. I saw a show at Brockway, which was Another which was place. Yeah, it was actually at University of Miami. And Malcolm Tent and I believe Todd God or Todd Jenkins were booking shows there. And they did a show with like Pagan Faith and Broken Talent. I think SL. was it sla before maybe white riot which was the band that predated um the f boys the f boys they all like left the band and started the f boys um might have played i forget what what bands played that show but actually that probably came later sorry i'm dating myself here um all over the freaking map um but anyway they did shows at the brockway theater and apparently the brockway theater said no more punk shows because the university didn't take kindly to punk rockers peeing on the you know on the campus or leaving beer cans out or destroying things i don't know how bad it got but uh todd said to me hey man i know this really cool bar that's in little haiti and at the time like nobody came out to little Haiti. It was just kind of, you know, it's own place, you know, it was like a Haitian neighborhood and it was cool. There were a lot of good record stores there and stuff. And I kicked myself to this day. I never really frequented those places and picked up a bunch of stuff there. Um, But he brought me out there. It was this British pub, which is like, what the hell is a British pub doing in the Haitian neighborhood? It was really weird. And Dave had been there forever. And all these like local drunks would hang out there I think Charlie Pickett might have played a show there before, Iko Iko might have played a show there before, and Todd brings me out there, and Dave Daniels is standing there at the bar, and literally the cockroaches are just crawling all over. That's like, come to daddy. Like, they're just totally like, they're they're just so comfortable with him. They're just like, and he's like swatting them off and like, just continue talking, whatever. (laughs) And he's like, "Yeah, we could, you know, do a show. Say, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. we're like, okay, oh, no, Todd, there's no PA, there's no stage, there's nothing here that's really like drawing me to this place." But Todd's like, "No, no, we should do it." So we did. I mean, in the first few years there was no stage. I used to drag out this crappy PA that I bought for a hundred dollars. That was like these huge, long columns with like what, like three inch speakers. So it had like. 13 three inch speakers in each one, or something ridiculous. <laughs> sounded like total crap. And, you know, we started doing shows there. It, it happened. And, like, at the time, I remember Dave saying to us, like, oh, yeah, we can have a Skiffle Band on Wednesday. And I don't know if you know what Skiffle is. I've heard skiffle. of Skiffle. Well, the Beatles were a Skiffle Band apparently before they were the Beatles, but it was kind of like British hillbilly music. It was like this folk movement that happened in Britain during the early 60s. I'm like, oh, good luck getting a skiffle band in Miami <laughs> to play your bar, man. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, you know, those early days are pretty crazy, man. Did they have um, air
1: conditioner at that time in that place? I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Every
0: now and then, the parachute hanging from the ceiling would fall on all the cockroaches. Yeah, would- yeah and they're so gross, and spread their palmetto wings to <laughs> it's all these cockroaches. Cool us off? No, uh, no, I don't think they did back then. I don't think wow. they did. I don't know. It got fucking hot, crazy. I
2: mean, actually, he, had, he must have had some sort of air conditioning because it was a bar, but it was always hot.
0: So it was always hot. Yeah, it was torturous, torturously hot, especially in the early days. And what happened was, like, for several years, like Todd stopped doing it after a few months, and then I continued doing it and then rat got involved or frank Filestra, rat bastard and he talked dave into investing in getting a stage in getting a pa he even talked him into building an adat uh machine in the place which is why that the the um the music for um the compilations that Rat put out you know came out from that the recordings from the board and um Things just start going a little better and better as things progressed, because back in the early days, as I said, the PA just sounded like total ass. Yeah. There was no way. Like, rarely, like back then,
1: two bands wouldn't want to come out to Miami. Uh, How did you meet Rat Bastard? And talk about what you feel regarding his importance for the scene at that time and all that he was able to contribute as well.
0: Um, rat at the time, I think initially worked for Eastern airlines and then Delta airlines. I believe chronologically. That's how it happened when Eastern went under, he just moved around, you know, and he was, um, he was like, I I understand the guy who landed the planes. Um, but back then rat didn't drink or do anything. He just basically like didn't sleep and like he recorded bands for free or cheap so pretty much like all the local bands back then used to record, you know, at Sync Studios, including us, and uh, including remember- the
2: prom sluts and KLS. Yeah,
0: actually, some of the first that we recorded some Promslet stuff at there. And I remember actually Rat, because he didn't sleep, would quite often be on the board doing stuff, and then he would like whenever there was a quiet moment, he would start nod out, and you'd think he was on heroin or something, but it was just because he didn't sleep. And everyone in the in the room would be like,
2: yeah, like when Robert, God, when the God. prom sluts are recording, he would actually fall asleep. While they were
0: in recording. between songs, like, you know, things Not would stop.
2: between songs, during the song, sometimes he would sleep. And then because you were I was in the yeah booth yeah. with him. So like, so I just clap really because like, I saw you know, sleep, so I'd clap really loud. Like when they did it, he would wake up and be like, oh, let me stop. So it was just like funny because I was just like, you know, we were just like, what's, the-? you know, we were young. And we're like, what's the deal? But, you know, now, where, of course, we realize, oh, yeah, he were, you know, he was lighting the candle. The the candle both
0: ends. Me- so
2: in answer to your question, he's very important because even though he was working and doing, he had the studio, and he was he recorded any band that wanted to record from Miami because I think he really believed, you know, he like really wanted to make Miami an important.
0: And to this day, he has music. tapes of stuff music that like song. nobody has, like some really mm-hmm. rare stuff on ADAT that he's recorded, or I know he I, might have taped stuff too from before the ADAT thing is. He was heralding the ADAT as being this new technology that was great, but now you could buy a machine for like a hundred dollars. They were like <laughs> three grand went for per machine, and they were each eight track So you would like he would layer up like four of them, and uh, I'm sh- I, I think he did transfer everything to digital, but he has like KLS stuff that we don't even have. Um, Priya decided to leave it with him for safety reasons, but
2: yeah, I was like, uh, I think we should leave this with him. <laughs>
0: We because did live in, like, we would have lost it
2: would not stuff. it would not be ex- it, we right. wouldn't know where i still
1: have my tapes but there yeah, you what. go what do you remember about the early formation of kls you
2: sucked um we just <laughs> i would always say we were more we weren't really a band we were more of a collective because the early days It was so when the prom sluts broke up robert had already kind of moved to miami and we were living together so the early formation of kls was just kind of like the you know just people we came across people that would come into our house we're like oh play in the band so the band was always like people that we just met that we just kind of you know clicked with or that were or someone that was looking to do something would be like oh yeah I'll-. you got the right look Yeah, you should be in our band. You're a rapper, we play sex, and then we, (laughs) you know, look for drummers. And then the other day, I think we were kind of talking about these older lineups. Like, we had this guy, Charlie Michaels, who's uh, he was British, but he lived in Miami and he played drums, and this other guy, Dan, who was like uh, best friends with my art school teacher's husband and he played bass and, and then so, there's
0: dale who rapped we and had then
2: we had a rapper because we got this rapper we're, like, rap we're like whatever
0: man we had actually backup singers initially priya kirsten katie and judith the girl judith that was dating my friend tom were yummy fur which was named after the chester gould was that it? i don't know this underground comic yummy fur and they sang backup vocals and then For the prom started formulating Priya played violin, like classical violin when she was in school, when she was in uh, elementary school, maybe high school.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And uh, I talked her into playing violin with us. She really didn't want to return to it because she was she had PTSD from. <laughs>
2: playing violin yes. that's school. a little exaggerated. but yeah emotionally
0: distraught she really had a hard Just, time um, coming
2: to i i didn't have PTSD.
1: connect with the music <laughs> okay and, uh,
2: robert you need to be quiet
1: now <laughs> um but how did you know violin was like an instrument you wanted in this band it was different we never had one <laughs> Robert <laughs> she played it robert, in the prom sluts
0: actually the ballad of charlie pickett oh yeah yeah yeah. we did a song the ballad of charlie pickett and the prom sluts and priya played violin on that and i think he might have played on another song on on the cassette that we did i don't remember.
2: i don't remember Um, so long ago i
0: forget but i don't know we're into camper van beethoven i was into like woody guthrie and i think even like Django reinhardt was a thing so i loved stefan Grappelli, and um and the violin could be extremely painful, especially when you amplify it and have no idea what the fuck you're doing. Um, if you turn up the highs all the way.
2: Yeah. And I don't know. It's just like with KLS, we weren't really like this is what we didn't like have a vision for the band. It was just more like we just want to be creative. And that was kind of the. Go to so we've had like we said we had rappers we've had people play accordion we rapper had we didn't have one rapper yeah one rapper and we had people play accordion or you know just whatever people yeah, could play boxer. it was just like whoever we came across we're like oh you you want to play with us like? yeah
0: like walking abortion during the early years it took a while for us to actually formulate into something real um I mean. For a while, I mean, we did have, like, things started going well. We had, like, Rob Vega playing bass, and we had, like, um, was Tim Vaughn playing drums at the time? Yeah, we had Tim Vaughn, who actually played in the Prom Sluts, and then moved out to Miami and started playing with us. And it started getting better. And then, um, love Rob. He was great. I mean... Perfect Rob story. I'll tell you this one; it's great. Rob basically like made up his own language, especially when he was on certain things or in certain preoccupied states, and his hair would get really big. I'm not <laughs> going to elaborate too much, Priya, because he does have a day job now.
2: Oh, I don't. And
0: that was like 30 years ago, <laughs> I right? Talk about so anyway, like when you know we started doing shows at Churchills, and there was a period where a lot of punk bands. We started, we would just book anyone and we started coming across like bands like chicken head. And, uh, this is before the crumbs, but, uh, Los Canadians and then the crumbs happened. Tri rails, tri rails and cavity. And that whole scene started. Cavity happening. was
2: crawled back. Then. They were crawl initially, yeah.
0: And then Harry pussy. Uh, Bill was in this band, uh, trash monkeys played drums, our favorite band from Miami by far. They were just amazing. Um, but we started doing shows at Churchill's with all these bands. So Chuck Luce and uh, 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 Eric Lyle, actually Erica Don Lyle now, uh, were in Chickenhead. And they started doing these generator shows. So they started doing these shows like they would go out to the Everglades and set up a generator. And like everyone would do just do carpooling or they'd all meet at the 7-Eleven. Everyone jump in one car or three cars and drive you out to this like middle of nowhere. It was almost like, you know, we're all going to be freaking killed. Um, But we were pretty much by the mosquitoes, especially in the Everglades. So one of the shows they had was at a rock quarry. And they're, you know, we we're doing construction and building like new homes, you know, and uh going there on a the weekend. Of course, there was nobody there, nobody watching it. So we went out to this rock quarry and Rob did not show up. And it's like, holy shit, we're supposed to play. And then there was this band Sloth and the kid had like this crazy, huge mohawk. And he's like, we had it on tape at one point, I remember or something. He's like why isn't anyone slam dancing Sebastian? Why are you slam dancing? It's like, because it's a fucking rock quarry. (laughs) You're going to die. You're going to fuck up yourself like really badly. Um, So anyway, Rob finally shows up. And at the time he was doing these shows, setting up these shows and he was doing house of pain and literally showed up to this punk rock show wearing all this house of pain attire. Like, he knows Ben bandage did jump around Jump. everything jump. was in jump. this jump. plaid green color. <laughs> it was just
2: like And it said house of pain. That
0: said house of pain, like everything is shorts, his shoes, everything, his hat. Like, his hat. <laughs> it was like he was just cracking up about it. And um and at the time, I think we were playing with uh with uh Paul Enema or Paul LaCourse. He doesn't like to be called Paul Enema from uh Free Yellow, Yellow and, stun and the Stun Guns. And I, I remember like there's still pictures floating around of that show. It was by far the worst show we ever played because the sound was horrible. It was in a rock quarry. It was freaking sweltering hot. It was like 110 degrees. And there's like great photos from that. I just remember tackling Paul.
2: By Josie.
0: Yeah, Josie. I think she goes
2: by. um, I don't know Josie's last name. I'm sorry, Josie.
1: Sorry, I'm caffeinated. I'm really rambling. we at the show that. Chuck Luce set um him, set himself on fire at the Chicken Head Show at Churchill's. Were you there? That too.
2: No, that's that's a different show where he set himself on fire. No, no,
1: but, that was a show we were at, but we were all I mean, we probably put that show on.
2: But the thing is, like, okay, so like all the bands didn't have their own equipment. We did. A lot so of them. So yeah. they they would borrow our equipment. So there was this, we had this drummer whose name was Dave, and I, I don't remember his he was last this name. this band called Heinzen Temple, which were kind of cool.
0: They were sort of like weird hip, uh, hippie offshoot.
2: They were like Sonic Youth meets band. the Grateful Dead.
0: They would do like band. kind of Sonic Youth type stuff, but more like Grateful Dead, like jamming, but getting really intense. So we liked them. They were really good, but they were just kind of like even more in that direction than we were even because we did really short songs. They would just play and just get really like intense. But the drummer, Dave, had this really expensive drum set. He was like a child actor.
2: It's like like, this guy. So anyway, Dave, who played with us, and I don't remember him because we called him Dave Farr because he kind of looked like uh Um Ruben Farr from Ruben Ruben Glover. It was was this movie that we were obsessed with, the Crispin Glover movie. And Ruben Farr was the so we call and he kind of looked like this character, so we would call him Dave Farr. But anyway, Dave had a really expensive drum set and he didn't want anyone to ever to use it, and which I understood. So Chuck came up to me at the show and he's like, Priya, can we use your drummer set? And I was like, he was playing with us for a short while. Yeah, he, yeah. he played drums with obviously he was playing. I don't know drums if he was with playing with us then. He might have just been playing with them, but anyway. No, on. he was playing drums with us. Anyway, so then I was like, Okay, Chuck, I will ask our drummer, but his drum set is really expensive, and you can't do anything to it. You can't throw it, you can't do all the stuff you usually do. You can't do that. You have to- head were
0: known for doing crazy shit like Chuck setting myself on fire or like I remember one show they were barring our gear one of the first shows chicken ever played and I you know bands would play and I just let them use the PA and I would just hang out whatever I remember James Genovese once screaming at me like man go in there uh, that guy, the guitarist for Head, is like on the bar with your Rickenbacker guitar, sliding his body, his whole body weight over the guitar and just scraping and that on the was, bar. That
2: was Erica. So like basically um, I was like, OK, Chuck you have to promise me you won't do any insane things to, because this guy's really protective of his drum set. You have set. an idea
0: where he's going. So
2: then I, he's like, I promise. So then I was like, okay. So then I went to Dave. I was like, Dave, can you let this guy use your drum set? They, they promise they won't do anything and they'll be very careful, blah, blah, blah. And he's like all right, fine. Okay. Yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. So then I was like, okay, yeah, Chuck, he said he could do it. So this was like really the chicken head set was Chuck rode his motorcycle onto the, and I was standing next to Dave while this was happening. So what he did was he drove his motorcycle onto the stage and leaned against it against the truss. set and that was like the show that was it that was that was like they weren't gonna play anything that was like kind of the set was he was gonna drive his motorcycle on stage and that was it so then i was like standing next to dave and that was, was the show before
0: he set himself on fire I yeah i think go up on that a little bit
2: maybe i i can't even remember i don't know the chrono- chronology of that but um yeah but i was standing next to dave and i was like oh my god chuck i gonna kill you but fortunately the drum set was not hurt or damaged and dave didn't really you know he wasn't really upset i mean he was probably upset he was probably upset that this guy was leading a motorcycle again but the drums didn't get damaged because i think he would have been like you guys have to pay for this piece or that piece which he didn't do so yeah his drum set didn't get damaged so in that sense we i got off like and then i just i literally i think i told truck i will never ever do i'm never gonna ask anyone to let you drum set again And he was just like okay so well, it's best gear. to
0: have your own gear if you're gonna destroy gear
2: yeah if you're <laughs> gonna do stuff like that you should get yes but the funny thing i'm gonna tell you the funny thing about all those people when they got equipment, I'm not sure about Chuck, but like when the rest of these people got equipment, they weren't so willing to lend it to other people. <laughs> they were just because yeah. later in life, I'd be like, why can't they use this person's drum set? It's like, oh, they don't want to lend it because they're afraid someone's going to trash it. I was like, what? Oh my god, don't they remember what other so people to did to is them? Right, the
0: dual standards of excellence. Yeah, you see it in uh, politics quite often.
2: So yeah, so that was. That was the funny thing because yeah. we were just, we were very supportive. We've always been a very community oriented people, so we're very you know we were willing to lend our equipment and do whatever needed to be done to kind of help form the scene. And, and we're sure. still very <laughs> and, and we still <laughs> are like that. But you know now we live in a you know town that we're not originally from, and there's a sure. more history here, so we don't have to do that. But if Fans do contact us. they like, can you book us a show where you live? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So, you know. What were some of the crowds like back then? Everyone got wasted. I don't even, re- I can't. it's all a big one blur to me. Like people were really, I don't know, maybe it was like the 90s. So, cause I kind of think about it in comparison to now, like how much freer people were and happier. And I just think, it was just a happier more free time right people, so were, very people were very impetuous and really got wasted and like people just were drinking and partying and having fun and i remember at one kls show someone set a phone book up threw it on the stage like things like that would work going and i like and we always
0: time. hear stories like people and then like, when
2: the stun guns i would was
0: teen and i got into churchill's i just walked in the door and drank you know and so we didn't watch the door a lot of times yes yeah, so, like A from the get-go said i'd get the bar you get the door and we're like fuck it we're not gonna watch the door I don't wanna yeah watch sometimes door. we
2: didn't we would party watch, in
0: the back we would watch
2: drunk, it you know? and that that was like more for local shows so like when when bands started touring down to miami then we would watch the door and we would just give them all the money so that's how we like would like ensure bands would keep coming because you know that that's the problem is bands don't want to tour all the way down to miami because and now gas is so expensive so i imagine that's like but even even back then even worse but back then gas was cheap and people still
0: didn't want to when we booked tours back then money on gas it was crazy because ivy from los canadians and Timmy from Los Canadians, and he played with us as well, they traveled out to California, so they had a lot of connections out there and knew a lot of places along the way, and they did this, like, I think they were jumping trains and stuff back then. Kind of interesting. You definitely want to talk to those guys. Uh, but they met a lot of people along the way. So there was them. There it was awesome.
2: Really, it was Ivy. Ivy was really the person that would, like kind of worked with, in quote, conjunction with us to kind of get bands There's like from half the, the Bay Area, too,
0: but they were kind like of like more in that metal vein and that the whole scene, and it was kind of a little higher tier up, I guess, as far as like getting those types of shows. And then there was Harry Pussy, so we knew like when we were booking tours, we um we would e- pre- would either have to call mention like Harry Pussy, Cavity, or Los Canadians, Chickenhead as far as getting shows and then a lot of times too because our band was like weird and we didn't really fit into anything directly she would make a bunch of freaking phone calls and back then it wasn't like cell phones it was like we'd come back from tour we'd go on tour first of all and a lot of places she couldn't get a hold of because they wouldn't call her back we'd show up there and there's like, the show wouldn't exist or we'd have to meet some people and like do a house party or something and get like like less than what gas money was then you know and it was very little. So, so
2: that being said, people
0: or Book Your Own Fucking Life, Maxim Rock and Roll put out this this thing every year, which people would put in, like where they lived and what you know they could press things for you, or they could book shows in their house or whatever. So that was also a big network back then, as far as getting shows and doing things. This is before the internet became, you know, a viable resource. Um, so we kind of fell back on that, but then we'd get back from tour and then we'd get our bill. So we'd, first of all, lose money on tour and then we'd get our phone bill. It was like $400 for all these long distance phone calls, trying to book shows. Um, so it kind of sucked, but even back in the day, like I remember talking to Mike O'Brien from the E he told stories about like, back then it wasn't really like, um, um, you know, people wouldn't, um, you know, they had terrible tours as well back in the day. It was just,
2: Yeah, but they toured like in the 80s and stuff. And I think
0: the guy, uh, I, he just passed away. Um, God, what's his name? Chris Cotty? No, not Chris Cotty. The, the manager for the E. And now my brain oh, is I not.
2: That
0: is. I mentioned his name just earlier today. Anyway, uh, Harris. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, he uh, told them to take a gun with them on tour because it wouldn't be safe, which they did. Uh, I think they toured at the Modettes and they just played like redneck bars and stuff. And it wasn't very favorable,
1: you know. Was this in Florida or was this in other places in the country? We toured around the country.
2: No, they toured. They Are you talking about the Eat or us? We yeah. toured around the country. But the Eat did actually, they were like one of the earlier bands from that from the punk scene that actually right. went out and toured. So they they like did. Like
0: 79,
1: 80. Or, yeah, like yeah. 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 What parts of Florida did you like to play the most outside of South Florida?
2: We actually would just leave Florida. We would actually wouldn't. Sometimes we play Gainesville, but Gainesville, like people just never really came to see us. So it was just like kind of annoying. So we were just like, whatever, we'll just drive to Atlanta.
0: Or they did when Paul was playing in the band and everyone's yelling, pull it above,
2: you know, just, it's
0: just like all his friends, you know, and stuff. It was just terrible.
2: So, yeah. So we just, um, I don't know. We didn't have a favorite place. in Florida. <laughs> like We just left Florida. And
0: our goal was get the fuck out of Florida and then continue
1: touring. You know? so, and yeah. and we had like really good shows in a lot of places back then. Where do you um, think you, where do you think KLS was received the best outside of Florida?
2: Well, Cleveland, Ohio, there was like, we went back there a bunch of times. There was a place called Speak in Tongues that doesn't exist anymore. But it was like, you know, a group of people there that kind of created this space to play. And in New York, we had this guy, Joey I, who booked all like. So there's this area called the region, which is like. I don't really know specifically what it was, but it was like basically Miami. I think some bands from it was Gainesville where Eric and Don
0: Lyle toured or went.
2: Went, through. yeah, and then and made connections, and then people from Chattanooga, Connection. and maybe I Oakland. think, and then California. But then there was like God, St. Augustine, like that area, the St. Augustine scene. So they were all on this tape, and so. Um, So Joey, I like was a person that booked all these bands that were from the region in New York. So he, Joey, I booked, (laughs) booked all the bands from that, from our little scene of people in New York City. And that was always fun to play because he let us stay at his house with his dad and his, his dad, you know, like love does. <laughs> it was just like you know. The sir.
0: thing about touring back then, too, especially was it was always a weird experience because sometimes you'd stay at people's homes and they'd still be living with their families or punk house. And one of my things was like, we I did this at at um at um place in Cleveland. Uh, Speaking, Speaking tongues, you know, I'd show up at places and just to keep a level of normalcy, I would wash people's dishes even if it wasn't our own. Um, but when people fed us, especially, I'd wash the dishes. So it made us a lot more likely to be able to come back and play there again. Because, you know, when you wash people's dishes, man, they're like, wow, you're brave. <laughs> playing punk rock houses.
2: Unfortunately, Robert didn't wash the dishes on our own house, which was like filled, always filled to the top. <laughs> it's
1: funny <laughs> how that works out. <laughs> Since it's out well, we, we, were,
2: we were the ones paying the rent. So I felt yeah. like and so Robert probably felt like other people should be watching our dishes. <laughs>
1: did any other Florida bands join you on any of these tours? Harry Pussy did one of them when we went out to
2: Gainesville, Gainesville but it wasn't a full tour. It was just going to Gainesville and back. And no, we didn't really tour with any of the other bands because
0: be- weird, we never did like the Stun Guns because. Andy played bass with us, Plus, but he also played, played drums with Stungis.
2: Yeah. So I don't but know why we
0: that's kind of exhausting, man. That guy would just, you know, basically go way over the edge and
2: I think he could have done both, but I just don't know why it just never I think he
0: said too, if there was a band between us, he could pull it off. But
2: yeah. You know. And so but I know the Stun Guns like did tour with Los Canadians and stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe it's just because we were like a weirder band. So I don't think it was like intentional. It's just like how it ended up being. Yeah. And I know Los Canadians and of course
1: KLS and some other bands all were put had music put out on Star Crunch. What's your memory of, of Star Crunch and uh getting a chance to work with Chris as well?
2: Well, Star Crunch actually was a label started by Mary and Chris. They were co-owners of that. And um, then Chris, you know, lived with us and stuff. And we were happy. We love Star Crunch. You know, they were Chris. I mean, you know, after Mary passed away, you know, which was really it was that was a real big hit to the Miami scene because Mary worked at Y&T and was a big supporter of the band so you know and a lot of people don't you know a lot of people don't really remember her and talk about her as much but you know she was a very important person in our in our world for sure and chris was really cool i i love chris he um was supportive of all the bands from that scene he also put out cavity and Los canadians i think drug czars which was the eat, Eat, (laughs) and who else was a who else was in the oh Jeff was I think Jeff and Mike
0: Jeff were and Buddha in the, played? I think guitar, Buddha
2: played right. in that band. So it was like a mixture of the Art old being, and
0: older and younger Ballard. people
2: making a band well, together. That was yeah. a cool thing
0: too, that I've noticed that was happening in the scene back yeah, then. Yeah, that
2: was the cool thing about the 90s was like, and I Robert and I kind of talk about how this doesn't really seem to happen anymore, but bands like Morbid Opera and the E and the, the bands from the that were like our elders essentially they were like you know they whatever life kind of happened and they weren't playing as much But and they had kids but then their kids got old Mike well Michael Bryan didn't have but you know like his brother did they had kids so they weren't playing as much and kind of getting back into the scene but then I think their kids got older so then they would like kind of go check out a show and then they were really liked it. And then like I would think like Ivy and Chuck and Erica were really into the older bands, like Morbid Opera and the Eat and you know, all the bands that were around back then. So then we would be like, You guys should play with us. So so then Morbid Opera actually reformed, the Eat actually reformed, and then we would have these shows that were like Los Canadians with the Eat and Us and Morbid Opera and Cavity. And so it was really cool and i think the trash monkey like that was pre Harry pussy so it was like the trash monkeys were also still playing then so it was kind of cool because it was like there was like a moment where it was like super intergenerational the scene and i don't know i just think that made it more fun and awesome in my opinion yeah i know
0: it's a lack of that really happening much i mean there are popular bands from you know back that get you know the kudos and stuff but i don't know
2: And I always say there's always that band that only had two shows that you're like, that's the best band ever. And you just, that's just lost in time. It was just, you got to see them. It was a really great show and it's just gone forever. A lot of
0: those bands too from the 90s, maybe because people are just getting wasted and stuff. There were a lot of bands too that didn't put out stuff. Like, Like, it's really sad that that lineup of morbid opera only have like that one cassette which they recorded at this guy Rory's house on cassette four track, you know, and they have like maybe four songs from that. I think Female Trouble and and that lineup of morbid opera was so great. Cause I mean, Jeff like kind of played that like sabbath Alice Cooper style, real trashy Greg Ginn, you know, just noisy, distorted, loud. And then you had like the dual vocals of like, of Libby and uh, Lisa, so it was almost like Exene and Lydia Lunch, just like harmonizing with each other, it was freaking nuts. They were so good, and it's just a shame that there wasn't more of that. You know that they didn't go into Sync Studios or whatever. But
2: yeah, and I don't know. I always tell people, the younger people, now I'm like, the best female fronted band is Mormon Opera. If you haven't heard of that band, you should go find what little they have released and go listen to it because you'll be like, oh wow. But the band, the band was around before all the bands, you know, that they know about. I was like, this band was doing stuff like this way before all these other bands. So you know, Florida is a lost history of music. So I'm really glad you're doing something like this because it makes people realize like, oh, okay.
1: Was there a band back then that, uh, or even as the 90s went on, that KLS wanted to play with locally, but for whatever reason, he never had the chance to play a show with?
2: Oh, oh I don't know. That is a good question. Uh-huh. I'd have to think about
1: that. Um, I mean, we are lucky to play with the E. You know,
0: that was like really, that was like one of those bands from before we existed. Yeah, I mean,
2: we were lucky to play with Morbid Opera and The E. That and even like, like
0: Michael Bryan was so amazing and welcoming and cool. I, me- I remember at one point because they were like one of the first bands that put out records that were like crazy collectible. Like now Broken Talents for a Seven Inch goes for a lot. But the Eat back, back then, then
2: in the 90s, that, the Eat 7 inch was a, a big collection. Yeah, if
0: you had Communist Radio, that first 7 inch, that was still like $400 back then or something. And the second one, we went for like two $300 or something along those lines. And I remember like Mike O'Brien once went to me and he's told me, yeah, there's a bunch of those records that are in our attic that were like my brother had a bird and it shit all over a bunch of them. And he's, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. And he showed up and he just gave me this record. It's like, this is clean. I don't see any bird shit on this one. He goes, oh yeah, I found a good one for you. (laughs) Nice. You still have it?
2: Yeah, 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 totally. of course. Totally, yeah. Michael Brian, So that was kind of cool because Michael Bryan wasn't married and at the time and didn't have kids. So I think he was like really he would always come to the house and hang out with us. And so he was part Chris of Chris too, was, like Chris Cotty. Yeah, Chris Cotty actually lived in. We went Coconut by his place because he
0: lived in Coconut Grove. He's a school teacher, and we even actually went once to see another band that Dave Daniels. He used to do this thing. Dave used to do this thing of really pissed off bands. If you have a new band that nobody knows about, he would be like, oh, Sir Robert's playing with the Funyuns, the ghost of Creamy Electric Santa. Or, or the Trash ghost Monkeys. of the Trash Monkeys. Harry Pussy was initially the ghost of the Trash Monkeys in Dave Daniels' <laughs> book. Or the ghost of um, or The,
2: stun guns, the Heat,
0: too. was a band that Chris Cotty was playing with, this kind of disco-y band with some bluesy singer in a Golda May jumpsuit. And I don't think Chris Cotty wanted anyone to know that he was in this band. But we went. It's like, oh, the ghost of the Eat. It must be a side band from the Eid. But we ended up hanging out with Chris a lot. He was such a sweet guy. Yeah, really Chris super- and Mike. I
2: mean, we did, you know, Eddie, like, was busy because he had kids and a wife. So he's, like, busy managing that. But, yeah, we hung, we didn't hang out with him as much. But he was also a very nice person. And they, they were all so supportive. But my, like- And they were very supportive. But Mike and Chris were the people we actually socialized with.
0: Yeah, Eddie lived in Fort Lauderdale, and he had kids and stuff. And he was the most sarcastic out of all of them. He was so funny. like perfect example. Oh, they're playing a show, right? <laughs> they're playing I think it was the first punk show they were playing, like with the new, you know, with, with the
2: with. It was I the same lineup, changed. but you know, it was the
0: same lineup, but yeah. So anyway, they were playing, and like Chris is making wise cracks the whole time. And of course, they were done with their set and ready to pack up and just get off the stage. And they're like encore, gonna song. <laughs> And it's like, Eddie looks at, like, uh um chris Chris. coddy who's a big guy who's really huge he goes look at this guy he's a fucking walking heart attack wait do you want me to carry this shit on my back (laughs) fuck you that's so eddie man he was just like and chris is just cracking up and it it was just like that was the kind of sarcasm and stuff that existed back then too people would be biting and mean and seemingly like today you would be cancelled but the fact of the matter is There was love, man. Like everyone would just, you know, back each other up. If you needed a ride somewhere or do something or whatever, people were really good. But they just would say and do the most.
2: Well, I just noticed in Miami and maybe it's because it's hot, Miami's a bit of a meaner city than most other cities. So we like showing love was almost like insulting each other. And it was a fun. And like, I remember when I was your
0: older brother
2: and I was living in the Bay Area, Los Canadians actually did a reunion when we were living out in the Bay. And because, um, the drummer and Ivy lived out there and Scott Baldwin, who was the drummer lived out there. And then Timmy, I think came and visited. I don't, I can't, I think Timmy was living in Kansas or something at the time. So he came in town. So uh we did a, they did a reunion. It was really awesome. And, you know, I was like telling Ivy, like that totally sucked. Like, couldn't you do it better? And, you know, Ivy was laughing. And, and then I noticed like, this person from the Bay Area was really freaking out because I was saying all this stuff to Ivy. And then I was like, oh, we're from Miami. This is how people in Miami show love to each other. They insult each other, tell each other how much they suck. It's like, don't worry. This people is just told how us they-
0: we sucked a lot. Yeah. And especially the, like the early days. You have to understand every single show we played, we were tripping. And quite often...
2: And we didn't have beginning and endings to our songs.
0: Yeah, that was a problem. Uh, uh, Doc from Washington Square didn't like that very much. But anyway, so we basically, like every show, sometimes we would get, wait for the the acid and drink first. And when you're drinking and then tripping... You're basically losing all inhibitions. You think you can't do any wrong. You're totally belligerent and you're freaking hallucinating. once you're tripping and drinking, it's fine. You're good. You're home free. You're great. You could drink all day. You can totally drink until the next morning and you're not affected because. So I'm going to tell the story
2: about that. So, yeah. So basically at one of the shows, I think Robert, I think someone gave Robert a Percocet and he took mushrooms and he had been drinking. And at the time, just to prove a point, and at the time, Tim Vaughn was playing drums. And I think it was Scott from the F-Boys. Scotty from the F-Boys had moved down back to Miami for a little while. So he was playing bass with us.
0: And that was the show when uh, uh, Nirvana were playing at uh, Bayfront.
2: Oh yeah, I don't remember.
0: And Harry Pussy were on like that I, show
2: too. I like I said, I don't even remember that. So anyway, every, like I said, everything's one big. And Cobain told everything, everyone to go to Churchill's and see Lord, Harry Pussy. You're interrupting me. Now I don't remember what I was. Oh Robert. So basically, Robert had taken all his drugs, and it was like he, you know, because he was hallucinating, he could he really hear like something was out of tune, you know, he couldn't figure out what it was. And so then he was just like ah, and then like then like now I remember like uh, Kurt Cobain because Harry Puss like Thurston Moore had put up a Harry Pussy record on hundred and twenty minutes, and so then all of a sudden they became this big thing. And so
0: was close to before when people were just leaving in droves, whatever. they had-
2: well anyway, so then um Kurt Cobain was like, you should go see. This band Harry Pussy at Churchill's after the show. So basically, Harry Pussy had already played, and then we were playing. And while we were trying to get ready, that's when all these people came from that concert to Churchill's. So it was way more packed than usual. So it just made Robert even more nervous. And so then he threw his guitar. Two guitars. First, let me tell the story, Robert. He threw his guitar, and I think it broke, the first guitar. So then he grabbed the second guitar, and it still wasn't in tune. He's like, oh, my God. And he threw it again, his second guitar. And then I don't know. It hit some
0: guy's girlfriend.
2: Did we play?
0: It hit some guy's girlfriend. Can
2: I ask you if we played?
0: I think we were trying. I think you guys were trying to play, but I was having even more trouble than you were
2: so yeah i think we ended up not playing basically is what happened and then after that this guy was yelling at robert's like dude you you hit my girlfriend yeah, next time you throw your guitar your- watch you, you throw it out <laughs> i mean you asked what the crowds were like it was a mixture of like the weirdos and then like miami and i'm imagining it still does has this really super macho latino like element that exists there so you would have a people like that mixed in with the weirdo crowd. So then if they happen to be a pro throwing the guitar, the guy's not going to be like, dude, you're, you know, they're, he's getting confronted with kind of like, yo, you hit my girlfriend. You do that again. I'm going to beat your ass. He got stuff. pretty
0: aggro with my
2: 90 uh, so, of guitar throwing savvy. Yeah. So yeah. So that was like, you know, a story. Of, yeah. yeah and, this, and then when the stun guns would play Paul would always be like, "Whoa, fuck you! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why am I doing this?" Whoa. Like, I actually later, I and he loves it. I was like, "You're like the Rodney Danger of punk rock, my Rodney, Danger, no. Rodney Dangerfield of punk rock," because he would always be like, "What am I doing? Why, you people suck! You hate me! You people hate me!" So and so we would was... always throw paper. So there was like, never everybody, a new everybody, times left in the house. Everybody would everybody would grab all the new ties and just throw paper at Paul. So like the stage would be with all this paper and so it was just like so that's kind of what shows are like it was just like we would you know paul you know someone complain we make fun you know just wild things happen i've just never seen the stuff that's happened in miami happen anywhere else we would be at the back
0: drinking (laughs) whiskey too because dave just didn't have hard alcohol back then so he's totally cool about it um so i mean we were just we were really, really, really crazy, inebriated and terrible during like, I think the first three, four years of the band. Cause I mean, we would be good in practicing great, but then we'd play live and it was just like, yeah. And you know, Rob, Rob Vega would be falling off the stage. And until like, I think the lineup we had with Andrew, Andrew Powell just was freaking phenomenal. Cause that guy would be more wasted than anyone at the club. Like this guy would just be out of his freaking mind couldn't
2: form a sentence like he couldn't walk or talk but, but you can play a bass or drumsticks or he could play any instrument like, so perfect, well like it was meticulous.
0: insane he would do crazy stuff like i remember we played a show in atlanta once and we couldn't play more than two or three songs because he would do this thing where he put his fingers underneath the bass strings and pull it and just like It was this nervous tick or something that he'd have, and he'd break every single freaking bass string. So it got to the point where we brought, I think I brought my guitar in to be fixed at some shop, and Priya befriended the repair guy. Um, But anyway, yeah, so he started saving all the bass strings for us. So Andrew would put these old bass strings on because he'd freaking break them, and they
1: were expensive, man. But um, yeah, there's that. When Andrew passed, how did that impact the two of you?
2: Well, we, you know, I had already had my injury, so we weren't really, we were talking, but we, we, you know, we weren't living in the same city and stuff like that. But yeah, it was, um, he was having a hard time, like going back. It impacted us. Miami. It, well, I'll just say it did impact us you know, he, we were like family. So it was just, you know, I mean, to this day, we, we miss, I mean, when we're, we're <laughs> Playing with other people, I like wish Andrew was here because <laughs> it just like we just our chemistry was so good. There was a spirit together, that happened so.
0: with the band, and it took a really interesting direction when Andrew started playing with us. Like he, just me and Andrew would just click off each other in a way that I haven't been able to click off with anyone ever since. Not to say any of the other musicians we played with it hasn't been amazing, but with Andrew, it was just like. It was next level. Crazy. It was just, it got like, there was something going on that was like, you know, when you, you play with some people, like for instance, Priya played with Michael Griffith from Noggin and be the prophet and they came through Miami and she met him and he was older than us. He was in his sixties back then. And they just had such an amazing like like connection they play free music together no to slow down here or stop so yeah like we wouldn't see
2: each other for years and then we'd be like let's let's play some free music and then we just synced in. it
0: was an intuitive nature like it's like jazz you know there's something that just happens when you know you see jazz artists where someone from germany and someone from america and someone from sweden all get together and they never even met they're just like doing some standard and then just go off and play free or improv and there's just this connection and something gelling it was like that with andrew it was just like next level crazy and you, you have to feel it's kind of almost like the trust game when someone you know drops into your arms and you feel comfortable doing that there was just something where like the bottom could drop out completely and it would just be incredible like something would Flower from that. And whether or not it sounds corrosive or terrible or great or spectacular or all the above, it was just always that, you know, with Andrew. He was just an incredible person. But we moved, we lived in LA at first, after pre-adder injury, we first moved with her parents. Uh, that's a whole story unto itself. I mean, we can get into that too if you want to hear. But we moved, uh, initially, we were living in Atlanta when it happened. We, uh, should I tell this story?
2: We moved to Hershey, and then we moved to LA, but that's when Andrew died. And um, I think Brad, who called us? Was it Brad that told
0: us? I remember I was working at Hertz Rent-A-Car. And yeah, I think Priya called me. Our friend Brad told Priya that he died. Um, and, you know, he liked to party, and he stopped doing harder drugs, but he did something and
2: he fell off the wagon which is a very common for drug addicts when they start and they stop they're kind of used to doing it at a level they were and but we were before so i think it was just too much and
0: we were talking about playing music again and he had a kid with kira um so i mean it always seemed like yeah it probably isn't going to happen we weren't ready to move back to miami we basically here's the story i'll tell it really quickly Cause a lot of people have heard it already, but we were living in Miami. It started getting to the point where like, we like to party and drink and stuff and do whatever, but we never really were into the hard stuff. And a lot of people we knew were, and for some stupid reason, we thought let's move to Atlanta as a halfway point to sort of get, you know, away from Miami away from that influence away from, we just went as far as we could with things there. We felt like, you know, things weren't going to move any further and so we moved to Atlanta with the intention of moving to the Bay area where people are forever like you guys are such a Bay area type band. So anyway, we moved there. We were there for less than a year. There was a show at this place, C11. It was this warehouse space and uh, some friends were playing fiend without a face, which is Brent who's in Mastodon now. Um, and Priya went on to a loft adjoining a skate ramp that should have been closed off, but they had an open area. <laughs>
2: Oh, by the way, we just learned all this information. We learned more information. Learned, because this person came and interviewed me about because they're kind of doing like a little, I don't know, they want to kind of archive the little, the, they're from Atlanta. So the, like the scene, you know, the Southern scene. And so, yeah, so we just learned like a couple of months ago when she came and interviewed us that they were doing some work on the skate ramp. And they weren't going to have that. They were kind of debating about whether they should have the show or not. And we didn't we didn't know anything of this for like 20 years. By the so like so I guess they thought, oh, let's put a couch up here and this would prevent people from coming. And I was like, that's I told the girl I was like or the woman. I was like, that's inviting. A couch is inviting. It's so anyway, not distracting. They all went, so up anyway, we all went up to smoke and I fell through this. Everyone else stepped
0: over the hole and I went through the hole. It was 13 feet, went buttocks first, hit her head. They had to keep her in a medicated coma for the first two weeks because one thing would complicate the other. If she moved or whatever, coughed, you know, that would probably complicate her spinal injury. And uh, so basically, like right after that, a lot of people, her dad was basically trying to make some money for Priya so she wouldn't be impoverished or poor because, of course, you know, having a spinal injury puts you in a very precarious situation.
1: Um, Or how did you know it was as serious as it was? When did you learn of that, Priya?
2: I, to be honest, like I like I was unconscious for like about eight months. They put me in a medicated coma because you were conscious. No. Um, I was in a medicated coma. So my, they were trying to keep my brain, my, I had brain swelling. So they were trying to, I did have a slight brain injury. It wasn't a traumatic brain injury, but slight things happened. And so they were just trying to, you know, they were in emergency mode. So they were just trying to make sure. And then like, even like my relatives would come visit. So like, you know, if it was an uncle, I hadn't, seen in a long time I guess I was reacting to it so they were like saying you can't you can't go in there because you're exciting or too much so it wasn't um I was in Grady I believe for eight months then they they switched me to Shepherd Center which is a spinal cord injury clinic and um you know I didn't really know what happened exactly and then this is like And I talked to another woman that had a spinal cord injury and we kind of talked about how they don't tell you like what's going on with you. Like they kind of, I I think it's more like to prevent you from like being too shocked or something. I don't really know. It, It must be a psychological reason, but they kind of let you discover it. Like you just know, you know, discover it on your own instead of a doctor. You know, it's not like TV where they're like, You've had a spinal cord injury. You will never walk again type of thing. Like that's like how they show it in movies. But the reality was like, um, yeah, I just didn't really know. And she
0: woke up basically after a couple of weeks
2: and she smelled like all because McDonald's
0: was across the street and she smelled the French fries. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was I want some French fries.
2: Yeah. And I do have a vague memory because I had like, they had an IV. So like, I don't know if anyone can see my hand, but you see, I have this scar on my hand. And that's actually from an IV that was in my hand. And I have a vague memory of, I think my mom was sitting in there and I think, I, I don't know if this is true, but I like, have this vague memory that I was telling my mom, my hand is swollen. And because they knew I had an infection, but they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And they were, they I guess they searched everywhere but they didn't check the IV. And so then they did check the IV and, you know, that was the source of the infection. And so, but I like, those are the vague memories I have, but I don't really remember. I don't remember falling. I don't remember the injury at all. And I actually found out about 17 years after my injury, I had, uh, Chattanooga had, they don't, you know, after the pandemic started, they don't do this fest anymore, but they had a fest called Do You Hear We Festival. And it was like, it's kind of just like bands from the scene, like a fest and it's like a family reunion type of thing. Because everyone from Chattanooga and Florida, and we've all moved to different parts of the country. So whenever that fest would happen, we'd all kind of go there and play and and it was really fun because, you know, you see everyone again. And so my friend, Josette, who was up there with me, who was one of the people that walked over the whole, like, she's like, I don't remember. And she missed me a couple of times, but I don't know. I just never, I just figured she would tell me if she, I don't know. I never asked her like, what happened, Josette? What happened up there? So then she's like oh you don't know and i was like no i don't i don't remember she goes oh and then she told me she goes oh we all went up there me you and andrew went up there to smoke some pot and you know me and andrew walked over and and i guess i was behind josette and she's like and i turned around and you weren't there and then i think she probably was the one that realized like i had fallen and it, interesting because another person had also slipped and fell, and they broke their leg. Like and there was about a guy month after me, up
0: by a bunch of skinheads, and he was killed. Right? I don't know. I can't. Yeah, they I they mentioned that there was a bunch of crazy stuff that happened not at that specific warehouse, but at the but space. in
2: that space, like, other different locations other thing, other space. locations in that yeah, warehouse so. space. So yeah, the that's owner was like, crazy. okay. This is the end of that. We're not doing that anymore. So
1: Yeah. With such a life-changing event like that, at what point did you start to play music again and try to pick up where you left off, Even it, even if you could at that point? What was that like?
2: Uh, it's kind of interesting because I'll literally tell you, like while I was in the spinal cord injury clinic, they always make you do this outpatient with a therapist because – obviously when things like this happen to people, depression and, you know, these types of things happen and it's, 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 uh, not rare. It's, a uh, you know, it's meant not meant to happen, but it's natural for these things to happen when you lose ability, especially in such a way where it's like overnight. Um, so I was like, talking to the outpatient therapist, because I was always like, I am really talkative, but in I'm, but when I'm in like areas like that, I become very, and I don't want to say I become, I am I think I become more introspective, like rather than, it's not that I'm not trying to be social. I'm just like more processing what was going on and thinking. And so really my first thought process was like, okay, how do I continue being in the van doing all these things that I've been working? You know, kind of because it was all like hard work in a way. Right. So it wasn't easy to do. It's just we love doing it. So that's why we did it. And that was the reward that we got to do the thing we loved. And so I was like thinking, how can I do all these things that I was doing before from a wheelchair And that's literally, and that's what I told the therapist. I was like, I don't know. I notice a lot of people kind of are focusing on what they were able to do, but I'm just like kind of more focusing on how can I do now? How can I continue to do what I was doing before, but now from this position? And I'm not sure why that was like, the thought process took, but this is what I believe. My mom was disabled, She, but she had rheumatoid arthritis. So it wasn't like an overnight thing. It was a slow process of her losing ability over the years. So I think my mom had that disease and she was losing ability, but it wasn't like she could still cook and go to places and do things and drive and do all these things. But You know, every once in a while, she would need help to get up a staircase, you know, like either my brother's arm, my brother or my or my dad's arm or, you know, one of my aunt or uncle's arms to get up a staircase or do something. So I think because that's kind of the way we lived, like she was losing ability and we just adjusted for me When I became disabled, that's kind of the mindset I was in where I wasn't like, oh, no, I used to be able to do this, but now I can't do that anymore. I think because of my mother, it kind of informed me like, well, whatever, it doesn't matter that you can't do it like that because you can adjust and do it, you know, do it differently Yeah. And just
1: thinking about your families, I know we were talking about something definitely more serious, but thinking about your families and did they ever share any opinions with either of you about the music of Creamy Electric Santa?
2: Robert's mom was very supportive. She loved it. My parents just pretended like it it it? wasn't happening. She did. Robert, your mom was so into you. She's like, everything Robert does is great. And I was just like, Robert's so lucky. He has such a sweet, supportive mother. And But she, I don't know, she, Robert would play this uh, music for her. And, you know, it wasn't her thing, obviously, but she never had a negative thing to say. And my parents, they would just pretend like the band wasn't happening. They just, like, when I would visit them, they never really talked about the art or my band. You know, we just talk about other things. Yeah. so they just ignored the band even though i gave them a release and it would sit be sitting there they would have all the kls releases in there amongst all their tchotchkes of stuff that they because my parents even after my brother and i moved out they traveled a lot like they would everything because my dad was a professor so every winter break and spring break they would go to go to and you know they kept traveling after my brother and I left so so you know like they would collect you know they would buy things from these countries and decorate their house with it and amongst that the KLS releases (laughs) (laughs) I think after my injury I don't think it was after my injury I think Robert played like like a song that I was screaming in and I think my dad was like is that you I was like, yes. So that was like the first time my dad was like, oh my God.
0: And he said, you take after your mother.
2: No, he did not say that. <laughs> he just pretended. He again went back to pretending like it didn't happen. I think my
1: yeah.
2: my dad was like, moved to America. with, And then when we, he had kids, I think he was just like, you know, I don't want to suppress my kids from being what they are as people, whereas a lot of other Indian parents were like, no, you cannot do this or I will not support you financially, you better go back and get that engineering science degree, whatever degree. But my dad didn't do that. And I think my mom would have, but like my brother and I kind of talked about what would our lives have been if my mom didn't have arthritis. Because I think my mom would have been like, no. (laughs) Like my mom would have been the one like, no, you will not do that. I'm going to plug Mark's book here. Oh, someone's at the door, so Robert has to get. So I'll plug Mark's book. So Mark, M- Mark Masters wrote this book, High Bias, which is the history of uh, cassette tapes. And um, Robert is actually mentioned in this book. Uh, I forgot. the. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but read the book, and then you'll know the guy's name. So go buy this book. Anyway, um, he mentioned... Uh, I think Mark Masters asked him who influenced you. And he goes, oh, man, Robert Price from Creamy Electric Santa told me to do this stuff with cassette tapes. And so that's like what really influenced the way he did things and stuff. So,
1: Was that a surprise that someone would have brought that up as that being yeah, so was, influential?
2: Yeah, it was funny because we we knew the editor of the book and he kind of told, told Robert, um, Oh yeah. Like you're mentioned, you guys are mentioned in this book. I'm editing this book and I just didn't, Robert told me in passing and I just wasn't paying that. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then there was a book, Mark came here and did a book signing and, you know, I, we just, we just went to it just, you know, go, because like, oh, like, you know, let's go meet him. I guess we're in this book. It'll be nice to talk to him. But then in the book signing, Ernesto, who was the editor, was like, and Prune and Robert, they band is in the book. And then we were they're mentioned in this book. They're mentioned in this book. And we were like, uh So it was kind of awkward because we were just like in the back of the book signing and, you know, just listening to, you know, it was just interesting because, you know, it's just like if you come from the era where cassettes existed, Cassette culture was so important to things getting known. Like, you know, of course, there was the Grateful Dead type of thing where people would make cassette recordings of their records, and now people would mix tapes of that, and they'd be like, we, I have culture. the yeah four track culture." And so, like, and then even like the region rock thing that was Erica Lyle made mix tapes of all the bands that they came across in that nineties era and people would take that tape and they'd like the tape and they would make copies of it. And so it was just like this underground way of things spreading. So, so it was kind of cool, you know, to be mentioned in this book. Of, was there
1: know, a that- tape that KLS had early on that was spreading around like that too? There was a prom
0: Sluts recording that we put out as KLS because the prom slits broke up and I like spent all this money recording it and doing it and producing it. And then the band just, dissipated and disappeared and went their own separate ways. So I put it out as KLS.
1: I think in the tape, it said, this is really the prom sluts. But did you both have a preference at which one you preferred, whether it was going in the studio or playing live? No, different animals. Right? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Playing like, live is just really fun and it's like a different energy. And Playing
0: live is like masturbating in front of people while like recording is more like you're thinking about something and then you're working on something and you're formulating ideas and then masturbating in front of people. But it's in parts. It's, it's a good st- analogy. Constructed st- <laughs> in a new way. Hey. Nice.
2: Well, and then <laughs> like Robert, nice. Robert's like, <laughs> Robert's like, you know, I still got it. Uh, Erica ter- coined the term of Robert being the mad scientist of punk rock. <laughs> But yeah, so the scientist is real, or the, scientist, the recording is really like the exploratory part. I have another theory about playing live. I think when you play live, it's like it really stimulates parts of your brain. So I think people actually be, get, get a little addicted to like playing live shows because, you know, people are there and they're like, yay. And it's like you're celebrating and it's really fun. And that feeling, you know, you like that feeling. So and like live too,
0: it. like I think we play loud, we turn it up and we we don't really, we're not specific to that too, though. But like, to me, it's always been like KLS as opposed to the prom sluts. The prom sluts, we had songs, we played them, we were tight, we were good, we were garagey, we were trashy. But to me, like punk rock, if I'm gonna do punk rock, to me, punk rock is about breaking the rules. And part of breaking the rules is like, why am I gonna play a bunch of Chuck Berry riffs? He, he's amazing. I love Chuck Berry. I love the Ramones. I love rock and roll. I love all that stuff, but it's been freaking done. Do we need another Ramones band? Do we need another Chuck Berry? Do we need another Dave Matthews? You could ask yourself that. I don't think so, but to me, it's like you, you should be creative and just like lose yourself in the moment. To me, those are the elements that really make playing music worthwhile and make it like, great, you know, and vibrant and intense. And like, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about doing drugs and getting fucked up and all that stuff. But really, to be honest, like music is like that even without doing anything. Now, I think I do a lot more psychedelic music than I did back when I was doing psychedelics and tripping and going off the deep end because, you know, you kind of learn how to do things and get comfortable with yourself and get comfortable with the music you're creating and. Think more outside of the box and not get stuck in the box or buried in the box, which is pretty bad if you're alive. I mean, I don't know. To me, it's like more about being creative and losing yourself in the moment is really the importance of it.
2: And the live thing is more performative. So we would just like, we would come up with plans of what, you know, what we're going to do. Like, I think Robert one time wore like, what was the thing where we had people to on everyone, take off your clothes? <laughs> well, it, well the, at the time, like Marilyn
0: Manson was really popular. And we were doing a show in Fort Lauderdale. Lode were playing there. And Lode played there a lot. And Bob Slade was their manager. And apparently they owed Bob Slade a bunch of money. And he talked us into doing a show there. And we hadn't played a KLS show there since the prom slits. Like that was my last band that played in Fort Lauderdale because I used to live there. So playing a show there, KLS playing a show there meant that probably we would have made some money if we didn't agree, Bob Slade giving him money because load owed him money. And essentially we went to go play the show and we were thinking like, what can we do to fuck with people? So I had long hair, I had really long black hair and I shaved it off like 2 weeks before. Oh, yeah. Like totally sorry, bald. Like right. I just I'm... shaved my I'm... head What's completely. It? I look like I walked away from Dachau. I was really skinny and really freaking emaciated and looked like fucking terrifying. Um so I put on this black wig and I'm like doing sound check and hanging out and I'm in this gold lame jumpsuit. Look like something my mother would wear to like a nightclub back mm-hmm. in the seventies to look on sexy. And I'm walking around and just people are talking to me that saw me like after I shaved my head and for some reason they're still like thinking, Oh, this is Robert that they, they're not realizing it's a freaking wig. And then I just did something on stage about sensationalism and bullshit and whatever. And they pulled the wig off and take off my, my gold lame jumpsuit and have a t-shirt and jeans underneath. <laughs> I was like, You know, because like Fort Lauderdale was always more about sensationalism. It was always about dressing up and looking cool and goth and all that stuff. And which is cool. I have nothing against that. But it was really kind of very like people were just very much into this kind of superficial trip. And I think a lot more bands in Miami weren't so much into that. Not to say everyone wasn't into that, but in general, like. You know, the Churchill scene was more about just like fuck that, whatever, blah, 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 and not, you know, having a plan and just working out and being super tight and all this stuff. We're you know, there's a lot more trashy bands for
1: Miami and stuff. So um yeah. What That's was the cool. reaction like when you when the wig came off?
2: I think Juan Montoya was at that show. He's like, oh my God. He was like told Robert. Oh my God, Robert, I totally didn't forgot you shaked your head. That was awesome. Juan Montoya was one of our biggest fans. Even when we really sucked, he always liked us. He was always like, You guys are great. I'm
0: like, thank you. Why don't you do Sandy Duncan anymore? Which was a prom slut song. We stopped doing KLS. Yeah. Dreaming soft of Sandy Duncan. Here, yeah, let me play it for you. It's freaking terrible. Here, dreaming soft of Sandy Duncan,
2: Sandy Duncan, dreaming soft of sexual function,
0: sexual function. When the world becomes under control,
2: nothing left but Sandy, the Sandy, that Sandy Duncan
0: nice (laughs) i haven't played that song in 30 years
2: (laughs) the dog is like what
0: happened
1: (laughs) robert you broke your guitar
0: (laughs) that guitar is great it doesn't break
1: yeah no it's great i'm glad that uh the guitar was more than a prop so you uh came through robert i didn't plan to do anything with the guitar
2: i know robert's like let me me buy it
1: (laughs) it was the right moment to uh for that to happen
0: so it's a fucking song it's just goofy lyrics
2: and really like you I think know. it's actually a good song i like maybe the lyrics aren't really that great but it's i like i like the song i like the song
1: is there a kls song that you think back on that just is has been one of your favorites to play out live oh gosh let's see i mean we still do a lot
0: of songs like who has got the new america which seems really profound these days
2: Uh, I think that that Robert, actually, that's the song Robert wrote, like while he was in the prom slots. And I, I still think I'm like, that song should really be a hit. It's like it's I think it's profound in every decade that that song has existed. It's a
0: rip off of Pop Goes the World by um, uh, Men Without Hats and uh, Neil Diamond, America, Coming to America. But yes, it's a very interesting song I wrote by myself <laughs> without any help or influences from anything else. Um, but yeah, no, it's, actually, it's cool because I do like lyrics that aren't very specific and don't necessarily point at anything. So the lyric, the, the song is Who's Got the New America, but the lyrics are very abstract and weird and don't necessarily point at anything directly. Like, you know, it's like lines like the Kennedy family Robinson, they understand, um, or who's got the new sexual freedom. And it's just very abstract, but still kind of making the statement sort of about something more, more on an abstract sense where you can come up with your own concept of what it's about.
2: And then, you know, that leads people that are listening to kind of attach their own ideas of what the song is about. Yeah. Yeah, which I like that.
1: I like that. Yeah. It's where me. did you where did you spend most of your time writing a lot of the songs? In the bathroom? In the tub. No.
2: Well, actually, um. one of the songs <laughs> that I actually like playing, because it's a good violin song, is holding yourself holding yourself. And um so Robert actually wrote started writing that song. In the bath, like in the bath, he was in the bathroom and he recorded it on a cassette tape. And then it's kind of like we've had that song on different recordings, just kind of building it up. And then finally, the last record... The Operation Space Time Cinderblock was like the final we production, had Baby Grand
0: Piano. like the we final had production bassoon. of that
2: song with bass. We, yeah, um,
0: we found I found people that played all sorts of classical instruments and stuff, and, but yeah, it kind of grew through a lot of changes, and then after that, it's like okay, we don't have to play that anymore—at least for a week or two.
2: Well, we're we'll going play it live, but we're you know the recording of that song was like you know it was fully produced so it was like and the lyrics
0: changed each time on each recording and yeah little things in life (laughs) (laughs) it's it's all those little things that build up and make life so special um yeah but it's not about masturbating even though it seems like it is it's actually it was a friend of ours that was really obsessive and fucked up on drugs that i'm not going to mention their name because they're no longer with us And they were calling her house in the middle of the night and looking for this guy and just being really, like, needy and emotional and just, like, damaging and just, like, they needed to kind of look at themselves a little deeper and probably get some help or something. And fortunately, you know, so
1: that was part of it. But the other part of it was about masturbation. (laughs) Glad we got the behind the music tale.
2: <laughs> behind the music. Yeah. Behind <laughs>
1: the Don't get me started on boo 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 gumbo gumbo lumbo, la 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 okay. number five,
0: which is a Prom promslet song <laughs> that was on a KLS cassette, but it was it was on a first actual release. But yeah, it, was, it says Prom promslets on the CD tape. A tape. No, <laughs> it's a CD. It was on the Bronx City Chicken
1: Machine Volume Two. oh,
2: oh. oh. oh okay, I understand now. In today's
1: world and compared to what it was back during the early period of KLS, you know, what is this difference for you both now still playing KLS music now versus back in the nineties? People hate us again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Um, it's We're- just different because it's it's like harder to find people to play to commit to play with us because our songs are very complicated and people are always like i don't know your songs are so complicated i don't but i'm just like if they're just like i always tell if i can play them you can play them because you know i made these great news so it's just harder it's
0: if you do things one at a time like all our complicated songs initially it's funny because the complicated songs me and Andy started doing just to fuck with Tim because Tim, the drummer was amazing and more than capable of playing weird changes, but he really wanted us to do more like rock and roll and rush normal stuff. And all my weird ideas were shot down. So me and Andrew would work out all these timing changes and all this weird stuff. And these like one minute prog instrumentals and stuff that were just really difficult. But then when we started doing that stuff. People were like, Holy shit. What the fuck are they doing? It's like it was just so like not what you'd expect to see at a punk show, you know what I mean? And we were just like, you know, I mean, I've I've always been into like, I mean, I like all kinds of music. I don't like just, you know, television and and Richard Hell. I like I like actual uh Jethro Tull. I like bands that are a little bit more progressive. I like Gong is one of my favorite bands. Their first out, their third album, Bear Electric is by far one of my favorite records. Um, So yeah, I'd love to challenge myself and not be bored. So, you know, it was kind of fun to play those songs, you know? And um, so that being said, that became like a thing that we started doing and, you know, just initially that was, really just to give our drummer a hard time and he learned them and was just amazing. So no reason the bitch there,
1: you know, (laughs) people were impressed. Is there anything upcoming from KLS? Um, well, we are, I'm working on on developing stuff.
0: We need to find a label willing to put it out. People, labels, people with money. Also we'd like to actually work on a documentary and part of the documentary would be, us touring with Priya in a wheelchair, going into places where someone in a wheelchair probably shouldn't be doing. But, you know, she's like a regular uh, stunt person. So she can uh, she can climb up stairs and crawl into places or do things that, we. I mean, we did that when she first had her injury. So that, that's part of the course. So if anyone does a documentary and wants to film us doing what we do, that is something we'd like to do but also too, we do have recordings from various places. We haven't put out a record in more than 14 years. Cause the last one last full length was 14 years. So I'm working on just redeveloping stuff that we recorded. I'm not quite happy with a lot of the recordings. So I, we did a lot of stuff during COVID with electronics. Um, so that's sort of a newish thing, although that was always part of things kind of, but, um, so yeah, yeah, we're just working on new stuff, new things,
1: playing some shows that a duo with electronics. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast to tell the story of Creamy Electric Santa and also talking about the Prom Sluts too because that was nice to talk about uh, that band as well. So as we get ready to kind of close things out, I kind of want to turn over to you both to kind of share your last word. Any final thoughts before we wrap things up?
2: Um. I don't know, Robert, any final thoughts? You seem to have a lot of thoughts.
0: Can I be poetic for a moment?
2: (laughs) Robert's on the coffee rush. I can't keep up. Um, I just think we just I don't know. I don't know what final thoughts would be. We just we just love playing music and being creative. And that's kind of what it's about for us. And we were lucky to have this moment where we kind of fit into something that people Really enjoyed, but we're just gonna continue to do our thing, I guess, right? I don't know.
0: As I lay here dying, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, yeah, yeah, we're just gonna keep doing this, and as I say, until the third stroke or fourteenth heart attack or whatever the hell takes our asses out, we're gonna keep doing it until we're fucking gone. So I don't care, whatever. People like it, they like it. If they don't like it, they don't like it. That's always been the motif of where we're coming from, our thing, so to call, so protocol, and you know, we're just gonna keep on keeping on, man. Whatever. Yes. I think. um, I think that's what we're. By the time you put this out, we'll both be dead, but the dog (laughs) will live on playing those little pads. It'll be cute.